Hello, this is Janet Gallen welcoming you to Love Letters Live. And today's guest is Noah Griffin, who is a newly elected member of the Timberon Town Council. And, you know, to be able to talk to somebody who's newly, newly elected is um, a privilege and a good thing because you can ask questions. So I do have questions. First well, of all, I'm going to let you say hello. Uh, hello, and I, there's nobody more popular than a politician recently elected who hasn't made his first decision. So <laughs> okay, okay. May you stay popular forever. I have a feeling you will. My first question really is, what made you want to do this? It can't be easy running for office. It can't be easy in office with all that you need to do. What made you want to do it? I was reminded of that last evening when somebody showed me the video of the police accosting an African-American, actually African-African store owner on Main Street in Tiburon after hours moving merchandise in his own store. And it got heated and he was asked to say, who are you and why are you here? And By the police. My, by the police. It's, this is my store. I own this store. You should know that. He was selected the business of the year, the, the year before he's the anchor store in the street. There are only there are three black people in the store. His picture is everywhere. And yet this hassle occurred and it didn't end until a white store owner down the street says he's OK. So um, this created a major stress in the town. And I was asked to emcee a town hall meeting, which lasted for three and a half hours. Wow. I guess I handled over this, it over this particular over issue, this particular incident. As it turns out, the town police chief stepped down, the officer involved stepped down. And I was on the hiring committee for the interview process for the new chief of police. And following that, um, they put together diversity inclusion task force because those weren't the only things that needed to be cleaned up in the town. And in the last year, we've only met six times. And it seems to me we weren't moving fast enough to get the kinds of things done I would have liked to have seen done. So I thought, well, maybe I will run for office. One of the gentlemen on the, uh, their, their men and women on the town council stepped down. I thought I would be appointed. That didn't work out. So I was forced to run. And I'm glad I did because we knocked on every door that we could. We had teams of people calling. We put ads in newspapers. Folks came to support me that I never even dreamed would be a part of my team from Nancy Pillow. From Diane Feinstein to the Jared Huffman, who's the congressperson for this area, the mayor, the vice mayor of the town. Um, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the Sierra Club, wow. uh, you name it. Uh, oh, so I, but I, I have a question about this, this whole incident, which is really disturbing. Shouldn't, I mean, Tiburon's not a huge city. It's not an enormous, excuse me, that's something just startled me, um, an enormous metropolis. Shouldn't it be absolutely just done without question that every time there's a new business opened up, the police chief goes in to say, welcome. I just wanted to meet you and say hello. And absolutely. And this was no. the business. This was the business of the year by the Chamber of Commerce the year so, before. So, but could that but, be? I mean, is that worth doing to make to put that on the well, book? Sure it is. And this police chief understands that. And he's cordoned off Tiburon into three areas. And the the police who are in each area will circle and cycle. So they, they will know downtown. They will know the other areas. Um, and certainly the businesses on downtown. It's not a large downtown. It's, it's one big street. That's about I know. it. I mean, I'm familiar with it. It's an adorable, beautiful street. Let me ask you something else. Sure. Did, did the police chief step down voluntarily? Did it, was it, was an issue made of the fact that, I mean, the nerve, well, they had a study. he had to have a white man's stamp of approval? Well, they, they, they did it. They did an investigation and a study and then afterwards, uh, 
both people stepped down, both officer and the police chief stepped down. They didn't open it up to public scrutiny. Uh, the report was not made publicly available. I'm sorry about that. I think it should have been uh, made publicly available. But nonetheless, if people can leave with dignity and they leave, that's the main thing. Oh, they um, did they, that. Okay. They did leave. And so it's a fresh start. And we have a wonderful police chief now. He's addressed every issue I'm concerned about. All and right. so we can move on to talk to uh, talk about other things. You know, What about laws that you'd like to see changed? I mean, you have to, you can't make suggestions and have people just take it as the gospel. Things have to no, be in the and, law, and, right? Well, part of that is there are no rules, regulations, guidelines, and procedures as to how the town council interacts. So what's on the agenda is left up to the discretion of the town manager and the mayor. Uh, you know, if they have great, great discretion, that's good. If they don't like something, it mysteriously does not appear. So I, I like the transparency, predictability and dependability so that people in the town, the staff, anybody who wants to get something on the agenda can go through us and we know what the procedure is. So there's no uh, accusations of uh, favoritism or there's no bureaucratic blockade uh, at City Hall. So that's you're that's one. About, you're talking about procedures. What about actual laws? I mean, do you get to, to do you get to we, make laws? We do. We do. There are five of us and you have to have it's the rule of three, clearly. But with the Brown Act, you can't talk to two people outside the meeting. So you can talk to one of the Brown Act. You cannot talk to the number of folks that compose a comprise a quorum uh, because you're conducting business outside of the public. So if you're going to conduct public business, it has to be in plain view of either the people there or there at the meeting or the people that are on the Zoom call. So there's you're not doing things in secret. And that's been around for 50, 60, 70 years now. Okay. So I, I make sure that if there's something I'm lobbying for that I won't, I want, I can't talk to any more than one other person. And people take that very, very seriously. Okay. So if you got you to agendize something, you have to say, I'd like this to be discussed at the next meeting. It has to be noticed so that everybody knows it's coming up. And everybody interested in that particular issue gets a chance at the same time to hear all the negotiations and what goes into the vote. So that's add, critical. So it, it, crime, is that a big issue where you live? Well, you know, the joke is with the former police chief, uh, the uh, moving violation in, in Tiburon is driving last year's Mercedes. There is crime, but it's not the kind of crime that you see in a big city like San Francisco. It's not robberies, burglaries, um, home, the homeless issue. We have some break-ins and those oftentimes occur in second homes where people live. They don't have their primary home in Tiburon and uh, they're gone and people circle and they they, they take a look at the, they case the neighborhood. How do people, uh, how do, how do people who want to break in, how do robbers or burglars know when somebody's out of town? Well, what they'll do is they'll drive in in late model uh, luxury, expensive cars, and they'll up and down the streets and they'll see who's picking up their mail, who's not picking up their mail. Oh, okay. uh, and sometimes it's inside jobs. Um, so that people know in advance, but there's only one way in and one way out of Tiburon. I was going to so, ask you about that. So they're cameras, uh, but the, these crews, as they call them, are very smart and sophisticated. They drive in in different cars or they'll, they'll change license plates. So what you think would be easy to apprehend, the people you think would be easy to apprehend, actually aren't. I mean, these folks get smarter as we get smarter. Don't so they? there's a lot of sharing of information all around the county and all around the Bay Area. So we're not alone in those break-ins. So they're happening everywhere. So in fact, we're having a meeting this evening and the first thing on the 
on the agenda for discussion is the chief's report on how he's handling the situation. But he, he's got a lot of savvy, a lot of connections. Um, there's one of those like moving billboards. So as you come into town, burglary suppression going on by the Tiburon police. So those kinds of, you don't have robberies, we don't have murders, uh, rapes, things of that nature. But, you know, burglaries and, you know, house house invasions are serious things. So yes. you know, we, we need to take a look at them and, and take them uh, seriously. Let me ask you something. May I take advantage of your um, historical knowledge? Sure. Because whenever we talk, I learned something wonderful. And I know, you know more American history than most people I know. And it, looking at politicians, or, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to use that word really, am I? Politicians. Oh, no, no, you know, it's, it's got a bad word. Kennedy uh, used to say, every mother wants his, her son to be president, but no one wants him to be a politician. <laughs> it does have a bad rap, you know, it's, it's yes, it's got a not good reputation. Because what I really bad. like is a, a politician looks to the next election, a statesman to the next generation. Oh, and see, we, that's just beautiful. We're looking, we're looking for more statesmen these days than politicians. Really? I mean, and so how do you feel about um, career politicians? It, it well, seems to I mean, me that it, it's a dangerous thing to have it be a career because then they have to just fight to stay elected. If you know what they stand for and they're true to their values at the beginning and they're true to their values at the end, that's fine. But when you have these politicians that are willy-nilly that will just bend to whatever the popular sentiment is at that time and they right. have no core values, um, there are folks that stay in office and they know what to do and how to do it on behalf of the people. Uh -huh. And there are other people that will, you know, whichever the wind blows, whichever the way the wind blows, that's that's where they are. And it's it, it's sad. It's uh, sad and it's dangerous. If they're not reelected, oftentimes running the country goes to the bureaucrats or the other branches of government. Uh, for instance, the Supreme Court is often called black robe unelected legislators. Uh, and they talk about strict construction as well. You know, the, the Constitution didn't say anything about abortion. It didn't say anything about electronic media. So right. it has to be a growing, expanding, breathing uh, of document uh, and interpreted in the time in which we live. Well, but that's always been the case, though. You know, it's not a matter of the law as much as it is a matter of the interpreters. That's it. So you have to have people that you can trust. Well, and then I think uh, it was Earl Warren who once said, I wish some of these people that, uh, that are appointed to Supreme Court would have at least run for dog catcher at one point, be responsible for the to the constituency. One of my problems when I went to law school is these kids that went to private schools, they went to Ivy League schools, they went to Harvard Law School or Yale or Princeton or whatever, and then they went to work on Wall Street and, or they were selected by a judge to clerk. And they don't really know the practical impact of what their ruling is on the pop public. It's it's like, oh, this is theoretical. Let's take a look at this. Not how it functions within real society. And that's okay, let's, let's, let's talk about your journey then for a minute, which was interesting. You were born and raised in San Francisco, I know. Yes. And you went to Fisk and then you went to Harvard and got your law degree. Mm -hmm. And um, you never really wanted to practice law, did you? No, I, I did a couple of fellowships. Uh, I did my law degree. All I wanted to do was be a singer. <laughs> and, That's right. I, I know um, that about you. And my mother, long after my father died, said he wouldn't have cared what you did know as long as you were happy. And we had a chance conversation when I was finishing college and wondering what to do after, which could go to graduate school. And he said, if I were young again, I'd be in the Florida State Legislature. 
So I thought, well, a, a route to get there would be law school, et cetera. And now, finally, I'm fulfilling some of what he wants me to do this many years yes, later. Yes, because you are. But, but you still um, have a career as a singer. And I must say, I'd like everybody to know, some of the best shows I have been at have been ones that you've produced and been in, musical shows, and you founded the Cole Porter Society. Well, that's, that's been a wonderful dream uh, of mine for a long time. And once I quasi-retired from a nine-to-five world, uh, I thought we'd throw a Cole Porter concert. It was well attended. My wife said, well, why don't we hook up with the Cole Porter Society? There having been none, we tentatively sent off a, a letter to uh, Cole Porter's law firm. Uh, and he says he's, he's connected with the collateral part of the family that ran the estate. And they said, fine, we think it's a great idea. So we Okay, so this is, an, this is an important thing about, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this sure. is an important thing about you, an indication of, you know, people so often say, well, what can one person do? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, one person did this and started an enormous um, following and an enormous success within the Cole Porter Society, which is yours. And that's that's a good that's a good record for somebody elected to office that you know what one person can do. Well, you think of the ideas that one person has has about changing the world. To me, the three most important folks of the last century were Nelson Mandela, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King. One person with an idea as to how something could come about, inspiring other people. And there you go. Can we talk about how you inspire? Because one of the issues, not an issue, but something I've always noticed, and I know I'm not alone, is that politicians, people who get elected to office, mm-hmm. um, are able to inspire. They've got a certain kind of a charm or charisma, and they can draw people in with them. Well, I didn't so know that I had that. any of that. My ninth grade teacher told me, and she'd also been my Latin teacher, my homeroom teacher. Noah, you have leadership capacity. You ought to exercise that. And I immediately started running for office. And when I wasn't running for office, I was helping politicians who were, uh, I worked on two presidential campaigns, a senatorial campaign. I worked for the mayor, San Francisco. Um, And then now I get a chance to make those decisions on my own. But in each one of those situations, there were people who were capable and able to draw people to them, either by by being a party nominee, and, and going through the ranks in that regard and drawing people to them. Or even as, as a talk show host, I was told by Jim Easton, the former talk show host at KGO Radio many years ago, which was connected with ABC at the time. No, you have to get people to get to, to like you. They may not agree with you that particular day, but mm-hmm. they respect you and they like you. That goes a long way of getting folks to do what push them in the direction you'd like them to go or finding out from them a direction that you, might, you should go that you may not have said, considered. An old lawyer once said to me one time, no, there's no issues. There's no argument so thin. It's, it's no pancake so thin. There's not another side. So you have to keep open. To let, let, me, let me ask you something about your view. Uh, looking back or around you, um, which elected officials in our whole history do you think did the best job? What did they bring to it? Well, I was having a talk with Leon Litwack once. He's, he's deceased in the last year, a Pulitzer Prize winning scholar about the top four presidents. And he ranked Lincoln one, Roosevelt two, Washington three, and Barack Obama four. Um, the people who faced fantastic. Wait, and what about, what about how you rank them? 
I would be close to that. I, I uh, of all the presidents, I admire Lincoln the most. I, I would put Johnson in there as well, uh, and certainly Barack Obama because of the fantastic odds he, he faced just to get elected. And also the other side said, we're not letting him get anything accomplished. Otherwise, we can't get in office. So he still got things accomplished like the Affordable Care Act. But Lincoln uh, grew as a, as, a, as a politician, as a, as a human being, understanding that he had to free the slaves as, as, as much as he was able to do so. People think today that the slaves free themselves, and in part, that's true. Um, Roosevelt uh, took over in times that were very difficult and challenging during the Depression. Washington began the whole thing. Uh, I'm not totally enamored with him because now, he, did, did Washington begin it consciously or was he drawn into it by others somehow? I mean, what was his? He, he was drawn. He was like Cincinnatus who uh, served and then went, went back to being a farmer. Uh, yeah. And he could have been king. He could have done anything he yes. wanted. He set the precedent of running only for two terms. And mm -hmm. that was that. Um, but he never envisioned uh, a, a nation without slavery. Um, and so I, I fault him there. Um, but, you know, he began the whole experiment, no, that, which that, is still part today. Well, you say he never envisioned, a, you know, <coughs> excuse me, a life without slavery. There was, there's a thin line, I guess, between ignorance and viciousness. I mean, you have to know how these people were treated. Oh, sure he did. Excuse yeah. for that. And, you know, he was going to free them upon his death, but then he-, he moved His own personal to, slaves, you mean. To his wife's death, because uh, if they knew that after she died, uh, he, they would be free, then there was a there was an incentive maybe to do away with her. Uh, or oh. after he, So, uh, yeah, and then he broke the law. He's, uh, his favorite chef escaped to New York and he went chasing her when he knew that once she was on uh, free soil, she was free. Uh, yeah. So, you know, none of us without, uh, well, there's the, what's the old saying, there's no, there's no saint without a past and no sinner without a future. But uh -huh. uh, even, even, even the saints, when you look back on their, <laughs> I mean, they make them holier than holy, but they, they well, all such have. An ugly time, such an ugly time. Talk, talk about Woodrow Wilson. You know, I was thinking about him the other day insofar as he resegregated the whole federal government. That's just uh, so shocking. And he was the one that, that gave birth to the film Birth of a Nation in the sense that mm -hmm. it didn't pass the censors at the time, but he showed it to all the major committees of Congress and the Supreme Court, and he said it was history written in lightning. And so a group like the Ku Klux Klan, a terrorist group, which was dying out, was all of a sudden revitalized by this epic mm -hmm. movie. And it was an epic movie. I mean, the average flicker cost five cents in those days. It cost $2 to go see this movie. And it is a classic cinema-wise, but its message was very painful and hurtful uh, in justifying what the South did and justifying the rise of the Klan, the continuance of it. I was in uh, Atlanta for the NAACP convention in 1962 as a junior delegate, mm -hmm. and uh, they were passing out leaflets, come see the true story of the Civil War and Reconstruction tonight at Stone Mountain, Georgia, uh, uh, and to, to, to see Birth of a Nation. Uh, but the, 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 the way they got control of the history, the, the North won the war, but the, the South won the history. They romanticized it. Moonlight and Magnolias and the Lost Cause. They're now just addressing the fact that this was an insurrection. This was a rebellion. They were traitors to this country.
Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter how valiantly you want to portray somebody like Robert E. Lee, he was a traitor to this country. You know, it, well, it does take on the issue of how powerful movies are, but that's like a whole other topic. But oh what, yeah, with the gone with gone with the wind, uh, this movie and the glory seemed to clean a little a lot of that up. And from the standpoint that I talked to a guy who went to the University of California, Berkeley, and he said his history professor said that black people were the only people in the history of the world that never lifted a finger for their own freedom. And that was wrong. There were 100, 187,000 black soldiers who fought in the Civil War in the vanguard. Really? Well, vanguard I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how people get away with leaving these things out of history as long as they're teaching. It is kind of shocking, you know. Well, we're having these battles about history now. I mean, in, in Germany, you cannot teach history without talking about the Holocaust. You just can't do it. We have no national history. We have each history that the states put together and the, and the and school boards have to oversee. So now we're getting books. Now we can't talk about slavery because it makes the white kids in the class feel badly. You know, you talk about white fragility. You, how can you confront something if you, if you don't face it? I, Demosthenes once said, no lasting power can ever continue built on an injustice. And from 1803 to 1938, the major export of this country was gotten. And mm-hmm. he picked that cotton mm-hmm. over those years. So it wasn't just way back then and ended after slavery. We're still picking cotton up till 1938. The majority mm-hmm. of us were, uh, many of us were, not the majority of us, but many of us yeah. were. So, did, you know, I, I read um, because a friend of mine who just loved Go- Gone with the Wind mm-hmm. movie, and she'd read the book and she'd read it several times. And I thought, okay, you know, join the, <laughs> join the world. So I picked it up and I read it. And I'll tell you, I couldn't get past like the first 80 pages. First of all, okay, with all due respect to everyone who sees value, I thought it was boring mm-hmm. and it was offensive. Yes, very offensive. And they cleaned a lot of it up for the movie. They took the N-word out uh, in the movie. Um, but they still but- showed, they sh- showed groups of enslaved people yes. having a good time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know, we... we had a good time up until, one, the, huh? up until the time of the Black History Movement came in in the 60s, and it was legitimate and uh, to have a uh, textbooks and classes and African American studies, and people could really see what a major part of history was all about. Uh, I think it's John Oliver Killens who wrote the book, and then we heard the thunder about Black participation in World War II. Said mm-hmm. to his daughter when asked, "Daddy, how come the lions are always killed by the gladiators in the arena?" <laughs> they said it'll be that way until the lions start to write the history books. And so yeah. the lions are beginning yeah. to write the history books and beginning to see a, a broader picture of what this experiment has been all about all along and just left out. You know, I've often wondered, you know, our war with Mexico, what do the Mexicans say in their textbooks about our pretense and going in there and taking all of that land? Mm-hmm. Uh, we never talk about the reason for the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, Toussaint Louverture beat Napoleon in Haiti, and he put so much money into that, he had to sell land to the United States for Louisiana Purchase. So Haiti became an independent country in 1803. We never recognized because it would give impetus and incentive for our slaves to rise up and be free. Uh, so this, this nation has a very checkered past, and it doesn't want to live up well, to Well, you it. know, from the beginning, I'm, I remember coming home. Okay, this is kind of beside the point, but I remember coming home from grammar school, I must have been like, what, eight years old, third grade or something. And um, Columbus Day. Yes. Big deal. <laughs> so, you know, Columbus Day, guess what? It's Columbus Day, mommy. And she's, you know, I said, Columbus discovered America. She said to me, she said, 
Columbus didn't discover anything. There were already people living there. Schmuck got lost. <laughs> well, Joe Chapetta, I used to show and up. That was the end of that lesson, what? In, in a rowboat in the San Francisco Bay, dressed like Columbus. And a bunch of Native Americans, indigenous people met him there. She, she, she said, you didn't discover this. We were here first, but in a broken Italian accent, he says, yeah, but you didn't know where you was. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right. So it's I'm just getting back to Woodrow Wilson and elected officials who were revolting. Little uh, did he think 100 years later, he would be judged for how he treated the lowly Negroes. <laughs> okay, so that's what I want to, you know, at some point, do you think people today who are elected to office are more aware of the fact that they had better do better or they're going to be obliterated by history? Because I think most of these people who get elected want to be remembered as something great. Until they get wedded to that office and only care about the present and not about the future. They asked W. Bush, yeah, what he, he said, what, what should I care? What, what would I care? I'll be dead. Well, you want to have a good legacy. I'm 76 years old, the last birthday. I want to leave with whatever name I have, reputation intact, not only for myself, but for my children. So you're saying that about you. I wish more of them would have that feeling. They well, I was going to ask what I was going to ask you how you want to be remembered. I want to be somebody who raised four decent children and left at least a poem behind that each generation knows and who tried to do the right thing. I think some philosophers said the most important question in any issue you face is what good may I do in it? That I faced whatever issue that I could and asked that question of myself, what good may I do in it? And did it uh, irrespective of the consequences. I have a feeling you will be remembered well. For generations. You've got a grandson now. Yes. Well, right? <laughs> at, at 75, it was, uh, it was wow. a start, startling. My friend Mark Fearman, uh, we're classmates, had his first at 75. And, and we, we can't wait to get our prams and walk those, and drive those kids. Yes. Through the park. Yes. <laughs> but you know, you look at the future, you got this bit of protoplasm in you, and you don't know what their personality is going to be like, because they're already formed when they're here. I think Cahill Gibran says they come through you, not to you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You're just, and, we're just the vehicle. And your granddaughter is just so grown. I just can't the vehicle. It. So, so talking about the future, can I segue into love letters here? Sure. <laughs> we talked about this. We've talked about this a lot, but now that you've got a grandson, first of all, you were you talked about wanting to write letters you had mentioned to me to the women on your staff who helped you so enormously in this campaign you're going to yes. do that right i and i do it regularly with if, with their emails i haven't written them out but i thank each and every one of them for what they do now i need okay, to write but, it out because you, you suggested I, I, I wrote one to my mother long after she had passed and i mailed it, mailed okay. it to and, now that's that's a different thing because you can email what you want but I want to just say a little cautionary something here that technology changes enormously, abruptly and completely every few years so that what you think is going to last forever. Think again, you know, remember those little floppy disks? Yes. That we thought we could just put everything, you know, just Darn. flush. I mean, no, you can't watch your, you can't watch your VCRs anymore because they corrode after about 20 years. Mm. Only thing, now I have collections of letters and a lot, I'm sure a lot of people do. 
um, that are written like in 1917. Mm. And they are as clear today as they were the day they were written. I mean, indelible ink and good paper, but you could, so for the best storage for how you feel and what you're grateful for and who you love is still a handwritten letter. Well, you know, the, even the newspapers, the newspapers of this era, they're, they're gone. The news, I have newspapers going back to the 1830s and they, and you can read them. They're legible. You can, they were done on ragweed. The, the, the acid on the newspaper today, they, they, they don't last at all. They just That's right. Last. That's right. So quality of paper, but, but also, you know, for, if you write letters to your grandson, oh, this, okay, this would be just my dream project for you. I love assigning. <laughs> if you write to him, sit down and write to him once a month, just a little note about what you've done or what's important to you or what you're thinking and you're wishing, whatever it is, based on how much you love this little boy, there's going to be a collection someday of letters that are going to be an important part of our San Francisco Bay Area political history. Well, I tell you, my friend Bill Everwine, who passed away a few years ago, um, knew he was dying of cancer. So he wrote letters to his children when they would graduate from college, mm-hmm. when they would get married, mm-hmm. when not to be open until they started their careers. Um, and I thought that was the most thoughtful thing. He was an excellent writer, too. But what a wonderful way to pass on, but not really pass on, just still right. be able in their hearts by virtue of the milestones in their lives that he knew they were going to approach. And, and that's better, by the way, once a month may be a little burdensome, but you know, once every six months or True. maybe just once a year on his birthday, something I, that he can stack them up. And by the way, we live in miracle times. You can take pictures of those letters or make copies of them. So you'll know what you sent. Ooh, that's a great idea. Yeah. That's a great idea. Just in yeah, case. I, I have, uh, I reviewed, two volumes of Charles Sumner's letters. He wrote over 7,000 known letters wow. and over 900 on two volumes. But we talked about this in the past, but the thing that interested me was the, the minute he knew he was famous, he wasn't writing to the person, he was writing for history. So okay. people would view him a certain way. Uh, I don't think enough. the former president was thinking about that much when he was tearing up all the things that he wrote, <laughs> making sure that as much as he did was was on the, over the phone and not written down well you know that that brings up the issue like how personal should you get and i mean you know the truth of the matter is in a hundred years when these are found you won't be here to be embarrassed and those may still be something valuable in the history books well gerald ford wrote a book and it said tell it when i'm gone (laughs) (laughs) i never knew that i never knew that well and then you know nixon and uh Johnson, they were keeping these uh, recordings of their the one their, of their conversations with folks because they wanted to write their memoirs, and that's what got Nixon caught up in the in the tapes. Yeah, because uh, he that's just right. thought that. So now, now we have they have to be careful. You know, I hate. Well, to there's the that. archives. There's the Archives Act, uh, so that everything you write and everything you say is. So tell us about that. The archive there's, act. There's an archival act. I'm not quite sure. I've got the name exactly right. But uh, what you do, everything that you do as a president is subject to public scrutiny and oh. public retrieval. So there they ask for your emails and your post-its. Yeah, somebody was telling me about the post-its. You know, people thought that they were safe, but the, 
They, they wanted Trump posts. You could you could tear them up, but he's he's torn up a lot now. That I'm sure a team of people just putting them all together. It's kind of, kind of ran the country like a mafia don. You know, I, I don't know who keeps post-its. I mean, the whole joy of them is you can write yourself a note and then crumple it up and throw it away once you've yeah. done the task. There you go. <laughs> uh, okay, I want to thank you for doing this with me. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. I'm delighted that you are an elected official because you're trustworthy and you have a really poetic soul. Well, thank you very much. I, I don't appreciate see it too much in office. Well, thank you. So, okay. I wish you the best. And I'm, I'm glad for all mankind that you are um, in office. I'm not supposed to say that either. It's humankind. <laughs> there you go. Or what, can we get, what can we do to get man out of there altogether? <laughs> I have to be totally re-educated. Anyway, my dear, thank you so much. And I'll, I'll talk to you later. And as, as life in office goes on, if there's anything you want to share through Love Letters, please give me a call and let me know. Well, thank you so much. I'll take you up on that. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye now. Bye.